Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Gray Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1970s. Except when we are in the early 2000s reviewing X-Men The Hidden Years, like we're going to be doing for much of this year. As a quick recap of what we covered last time, we went through X-Men The Hidden Years, which is the John Byrne series that started in late 1999 and ran 22 issues that uh, immediately comes after chronological the X-Men series uh, that ended with volume one at number 66. Uh, Today we're going to be reviewing X-Men The Hidden Years numbers two and three. In episode one, or issue one review, we had the editor Jason Liebig from this book and the colorist Gregory Wright from this book, and we talked all about their work with it. It was wonderful. Uh, Basically, all you need to know, Professor X is not dead, and he wants the X-Men to go back to the Savage Land to make sure that Magneto is actually dead. And so Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Angel, and Beast went to investigate, but their ship crashed, and they were captured by a local tribe, and the three boys woke up and found Marvel Girl's empty costume and they were told she had gone been uh, taken to the land of the dead and they're like oh no uh meanwhile Amphibious of the Savage Land Mutates has reported back to his boss who is the ghost of Magneto and meanwhile Lorna Dane is interested in Havoc now and Iceman is very upset about it and uh has quit the team that's that's a quick recap of the first issue we will get to that in our review today Uh, We're going to be interviewing the incredible uh, artist Ken Nimura today. Uh, We will be talking more about Ken and his work in a little while. But first, I am joined by my podcasting friends who are just as gay as me. (laughs) Just saying something. Uh, Dayspring and Kellen Batia from the uh, Homo Superior podcast. Dayspring being from the Power of X-Men podcast. Uh, Dayspring's been on my show a few times. Uh, Kellen, this is your first time here. It's great to see you both. Let me ask you the question, Where? Uh, what is your name? Where do people know you from? What are your gender pronouns? And our question for today, based on Magneto's terrible disguise as a ghost, have you ever seen a ghost? Uh, let's go with uh, Kellen and then Paul. Sure, uh, well, I'll start with your question. I don't know if I've ever seen a ghost, but I've certainly been ghosted. Uh, I will not name the boys that have done that to me, but uh, my name is Kalen Batia. I am one of Five, yes, five co-hosts of the Homosphere podcast. We're about to celebrate our sixth anniversary. It's a lot of numbers I'm throwing at you, five, six. Uh, but we are a um, queer podcast uh, focused mostly on the X-Men and the MCU. We're five gay nerds based in Washington, D.C. We're obsessive. We're unapologetic about our opinions. And we put out our podcast weekly. And you can expect uh, smart analysis, but mostly dumb jokes from us. I have had the pleasure of meeting Kellen in person once, uh, as well as uh, some of his co-hosts. 
Uh, I also have a local friend who knows you guys, which is a, a random connection that we made once. Conrad Zudenhorst, yes. Yes, yes. When, uh, when I was coming up for names for my podcast, there was like a whole three days of strategizing. And I was looking at what's out there. And I'm like, someone already took Homo Superior. No. <laughs> such a great <laughs> Sorry about that. That's such a great name. <laughs> Can I just tell you, Homo Superior and Gray Malkin Lane put the biggest smile on my face. Every morning I wake up. Chad, you already have your like random battle up and then ready we for me. Four in the morning. I, how? <laughs> how? I don't know. But then when I see Homo Superior, when you do your drinks, when you do your jokes, when you're voting on best outfits, it just both of you, the vibes, the communities you have created, just put the biggest smile on my face. Thank We're you. Right for back at you. So nice friend. of you to say. Yeah, absolutely. Now I assure you, I don't remember anything I post. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself as well, Mr. Dayspring? Yeah, so I'm Dayspring from the Power of X-Men podcast. We are a community on Instagram and YouTube. We're dipping toe in Twitter right now as of this recording, but I'm pretty sure we won't fall through with it. We, we love interviews. We love to get to the core of X-Men related mythos, news, and stuff like that. So we really do see ourselves as investigative journalists for that. And we like how things happen, not how we think it happened, but how it happened. And we sort of report on that. My pronouns are he, him, but we are a community. So please feel free to say whatever pronouns make you most comfortable. And have I ever seen a ghost? You know, I used to work at HarperCollins. And there is a certain editor for a very prolific mystery writer. And I don't want to say names. But she reminded me of a ghost you would find in a hallway holding a candlestick. So I would get into Harper at 6 a.m. because I shockingly was behind on the manuscripts I was editing. And she would just manifest behind me and I would scream and I would be like, insert name. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing here at like five in the morning? And she she used to be Madonna's roommate. And she was, yeah, that's how, how long she's been in publishing. But she's here like, you must always get in early to make sure you're prepared for the day. And I was like, I love you so much. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. You guys all know me because you're listening to my show. Uh, so I do believe in ghosts, uh, weirdly, uh, but not like to a weird degree. I do a lot of grief work with people. And I often am talking to people who can like sense the presence of people they've lost or hear their voices. So I don't believe in like, the haunting, you know, like gonna stab you in your sleep, American horror story kind of ghost so much. Although I've certainly had some moments in my life where I've been- I would love scared. to see Evan Peters blow up my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with the American horror story ghost. God, I had a whole like year of my childhood where I was obsessed with unsolved mysteries. And that like, uh, that like intro music, dun, 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 dun. Like I would be scared for three days after watching one episode. You I'd like make sure obsessed. the windows were locked. I'd like take a knife into my room and put it by my bed. I was always scared, but I would watch it all the time. That was like my ghost era, I suppose. <laughs> I think we all had a ghost era and a witchy willow era. <laughs> if you were a gay boy growing up at a certain time. Did I, you have a vampire era? Because I certainly did. That's oh I, my God. I think it still exists for me. I think my Helen, you era give Lestat vibes, like Anne Rice vibes. I could see that. Uh, I love that there is this community of queer podcasts, and we all kind of interface and hang out once in a while when we're all in the same place. 
when I was initially thinking of entering this space, because I'm the newest one, at least out of the three of us here, uh, I was trying to find my like unique approach. If I'm going to do this, what space do I occupy? And to be able to call uh, podcasters, my friends, and uh, to respect the work you guys are doing so much, it's an honor to have you here hanging out with me. Thanks for thanks for uh, thanks for coming over. <laughs> thanks for um, having us. This is going to be fun. No. The honor is all ours. I remember when you sent me your trailer that you were going to post and the quality, yours, the way you spoke. It's just, Chad, you have such a wonderful presence. I'm so grateful that you're part of this community and your voice is amplified and is what it is. <laughs> Welcome. 1,000%. And I'm sober. And I'm sober. I'm giving you compliments and I'm sober. Uh, when, I, when I'm when i drunk, I'll tell you I'm sober sometimes. <laughs> but I really am sober right now. Uh, so we're going to start with our issue review uh, and uh, creatively splice together the interview with the professional later uh, because we had some time differences. Uh, but we're going to go ahead. Uh, are you guys familiar with X-Men The Hidden Years? What has your relationship been to this title? I have spent months figuring out how do I want to work this in on my show? I considered doing it all in one episode. Do I do it issue by issue? We're going to do the longer issues in single episodes and then kind of double up the other ones because there's some good stories and some okay ones and not a lot happens sometimes. But what's your familiarity with this title prior to this episode? So I remember when this was coming out, but just, I think the first issue was in 1999. I think it was like end of 99 to 2000. Uh, I was reading comics at that point. I started reading the X-Men in the 80s. That's how old I am. Um, but uh, I had kind of uh, given up on the X-Men. I tried Claremont when you came back the first time with the Revolution era. Uh, didn't really quite stick. Um, and I had little to no interest in the sort of nostalgia porn, for lack of a better term, that Hidden Years had. Um, I was a big John Byrne fan from back in the day, like Dark Phoenix Saga, Days of Future Past, uh, his Fantastic Four run. Uh, but, you know, as I was telling you off podcast, Chad, um, you know, it's hard for me to separate the art from the artist. And John Byrne has said some very terrible things about queer people, about people of color, uh, and I'm both. Um, and, and, you know, it just was really tough. Uh, so. Uh, I would not have read this if I wasn't on this podcast, but I'm really glad I did. Uh, I love, I am a completionist by nature. Uh, I love uh, what uh, Ed Piscor had did on, um, you know, X-Men Grand Design. I, I view this as maybe another way of looking at that a little bit. And I'm not as familiar as with Silver Age X-Men as you are. Uh, so uh, I'm just glad to be able to uh, piece together a little bit of that in uh, gap in knowledge, uh, gap in my knowledge, I should say, about the X-Men. Sure, sure. How about you, Dayspring? So I was reading the comics religiously up until Zero Tolerance. And then from there, I sort of came in and out as I saw fit. Predominantly, I was reading the X-Men series. I love Nick Gray so much. But I was picking up X-Men The Hidden Years. And there's one issue in particular, I believe it was issue nine, eight, maybe, where they kind of buddy up with the Fantastic Four and they go into space. And Gina's like, I don't know what, but I feel that like something is like following me. And then, you know, it pans out to the spaceship and the Phoenix effect is in deep space. So I, I've read I, I read the series as it was publishing, you know, back in the early odds in a, when I wasn't really present for like the actual actual X-Men titles. It would come back during murder, murder in the mansion in like what was that like 2003 2004 something like that so i have 
a very fond nostalgia for this era of comics. I kind of like, I didn't know this until I started doing a deep dive when you invited me to speak about these issues, but it sort of evaded me that this was during that reprint era of X-Men when, you know, they were just reprinting the issues to keep the IP alive. And, you know, it's sort of marching towards giant size X-Men and the original Krakoa story. So I loved it. it. It was really great for me when I was reading it. Um, I have some feels right now about it. I don't know if I'm as happy that I had to read these two issues as Kellen is. Although I love you and your podcast, but I certainly was like, okay, when I was reading these. the uh, There were three big series, and, and more than three, but three that kind of did the same thing. X-Men Children of the Atom mm-hmm. is a modern interpretation mm-hmm. of the early days. And it does not fit in continuity. All the all the kids go to the same high school. There's no effort to make it try to make it the same universe. There's that was also, Joe Casey, right? Yeah, that was the Joe Casey, like Steve Rude book. And we we've done a little tribute to that book on my show, but since it's not continuity, we won't go back there. There's also X-Men First Class, which turned into Uncanny X-Men First Class and Wolverine First Class. Uh, they are great books, and there's a similar mm-hmm. effort to be true to old continuity to honor characters from the 60s, to tell big stories. But uh, I talked to Tom Brevoort about this. It's not considered in continuity either because there are some things that just don't line up. What makes X-Men The Hidden Years divisively different is that it does fit. They do keep the original uh, continuity, the original stories. Issue one references all of the 60s Neil Adams stuff like directly. Uh, And then we have 35 years of continuity that John Byrne has to draw upon so he can give us hints. So in this series, we see their first meeting with Storm. We see uh, references to Jean Grey and the Phoenix. Uh, And there's some things from the early 60s books that get picked up here, like Iceman and Lorna's breakup, you know, like little things that, that are fun nuggets that they tie in. But it does, it fits right in seamlessly to the original stuff. And most of the stories are pretty good. As always, my show is always about looking at old content from a modern lens. Uh, This is content set in the 70s continuity, but in the early 2000s is when it was produced. And the world has changed vastly. We are now in 2023. Uh, This is Y2K era, right? Like this book was coming out right after the turn of the century. Uh, It was a wildly different time. Uh, here's for context, right around the time these books were coming out, I got my first cell phone. God, I sound so old. And it was $40 a month for like 200 minutes and no data, no internet, no camera, no texting. 10 cents for a text message. Yeah. And it was like, you had to hit like one multiple times just to get A, B, or C. This is before that. This is before texting. (laughs) Yeah. Pre-texting. I had a cell phone just like that. Chad, I did. So I know what you're talking about. Wait, you about. had the Zach Morris phone? Uh, it wasn't that big. I had my parents. I did borrow my parents' phone once when I drove back to college from their house. And they lent it to me because they were like, they were worried about me getting to a wreck. But my first real phone was a Qualcomm. But I thought it was so tiny and cool and sharp, uh, chic. But when I moved into my condo in D.C., I found it in an old box. I don't know why I kept it. When I looked at it, I was like, what is this brick that I have? What is this? This is insane. So this is the hidden years. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Enough about cell phones. I, w- I, would, gonna... I would have the Motorola pager and the one that went, you know what I mean? And and a Nokia where you can play your snake on. Those. That's when I joined snake the is, Snake is the best game ever. Yep. I know. Sorry, kids. 
So hearing this put into context along with those other X-Men prequel series that aren't in continuity, do either of you have any content or comments on that before we uh, dive into issue two? <laughs> I, I don't. I will s- oh. no, go. no, go, Kellen. Oh, uh, I will say I, uh, as a continuity nerd, uh, and Chad, I'm nowhere near you having, you've written for the Marvel Handbook, which is, uh, my God, a dream of mine. Um, I, like, I grew up reading Marvel Handbook from DC's Who's Who, but uh, I like the idea of trying like, to make things work. I was going to say, it paid like a dollar an hour. <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> uh, that's fine. I, I would pay them to do it. You know what? It would be like a dream job. But uh, I, I love the idea of trying to make things fit um, because we all know, you know, the Silver Age uh, era of the X-Men, it kind of, it just didn't sell well. And then they just, they just stopped publishing it. And then they just did reprints that were bi-monthly. And it wasn't until Giant Size number one uh, by Len Wein and uh, Dave Cockrum in 1975 and then Claremont taking over where there was like this, you know, resurgence and, this, you know, the popularity just like skyrocketed, but like make the two never really worked. There was this like gap of like what, four, five, six years you would know best, Chad. And so I like the idea of making it work. I wish though, this is um, my critique before we get into the review, is if there was that modern lens in the same way that Joe Casey did X-Men Children of the Atom, because I really did like that miniseries that was coming out, or I think Dennis Hopeless did uh, you know, uh, X-Men First Class. You know, It is a Silver Age story, but told through a modern lens. This is, John Byrne basically saying the comics that I grew up with better than the ones that are out there now. And I'm going to be as old school as possible. So there's that a little bit of that um, disconnect for me uh, in being able to really enjoy it more, more so than, you know, like more of like a historical artifact. That's the way I view a lot of the, uh, the actual X-Men comics that came out in the sixties. Yeah. Uh, let me, let me comment quickly and then I'll turn it over to day spring for the same uh, question. Uh, Children of the Atom, the first book is great. And then it kind of declines in quality. First class is actually pretty fun all the way through. There's a lot of really great stories that honor this. The, the cafe at Go-Go's in it. Bernard, the poet is revealed to be a mutant. Like there's all this crazy stuff that happens in first class, but it's technically not in continuity, which makes it uh, the difference, but it's a, it's a pretty solid series all the way through. Uh, Dayspring, uh, did you have thoughts here? Yeah, I think, you know, when you're a reader and you sort of are the kind of reader that we are, you dive into this world knowing that there's going to be an element of disbelief, suspension of disbelief, right? We had Jordan D. White on the podcast last year, and he said something to the effect of, well, you know, the Fantastic Four would have gone up into space when Obama got elected as president. And I remember when right. that kind of like aired the amount of DMs I got about that, <laughs> you know, you know, and, and it's like, I think we as readers have a responsibility to understand that, you know, in fairness to editorial, that we we're revisiting these stories, at different modes, different eras, and there is a sliding timeline, there is sliding continuity. So you have to suspend your disbelief. You know, the one thing I will say, though, I love X-Men First Class. I love X-Men Season 1. Is that what it's called? It was like the OGN novel that was so well done. It was the first time I saw the X-Men with an iPhone and Gene's like taking a selfie. We're doing doing that book on my show this summer, but we'll- Oh, thank you for the invite. Thank you for the invite. Anyways, um, so I'm going to have so much love for those books. I mean, X-Men First Class, I was working at Marvel 
when that book was pubbing, I had a poster of it in my cubicle. And Flo, the fabulous Flo came up and was like, oh my God, I love that book. It's so great. It deserves a little bit more credit than not being in continuity. No shade to Tom Provote. But, you know, it's, I think we just have to accept that there is a sliding timeline, that these stories are going to have to be reimagined if we want that passion to be incited with other fans. And if we want these IPs to live on is my editorial hat for that. But X-Men First Class, that scene where Jean is the phoenix, she has that kind of like that vision of the phoenix. And she's here like, I'm the last one that is, is beautiful. You know, they were doing they were doing Swamp Thing for that issue. It is gorgeous. I love those moments. I, I encourage Marvel to keep doing these retroactive stories and revisions. Uh, and one day there could be a team up because they're alternate universes of the regular X-Men and the first class team, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it is a solidly good series. And I will give that series some airtime on my show at some point, but I've got a lot to get through. So it's- uh, Yeah, it's, I'm waiting. It's... I'm waiting for the Zoom invite for that one. We'll, we'll talk <laughs> over. Uh, you were here for X-Men. There, there are certain people that have Was to I? be here for certain episodes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, okay, so we're we're going to talk about X-Men The Hidden Years. I will note this in every episode that we do Hidden Years. Uh, John Byrne is a controversial figure and also a tremendous talent. And it's okay for us to enjoy the art and the story and just kind of let it be far, part of the franchise. Not part of the franchise. That was a very unfortunate. <laughs> Did you just say fart on your I, show? I, I, you are done. I say no, no, no. Much worse. no edits, no edits. Keep, keep, keep the fart. Keep you it. cannot <laughs> edit that. In fact, future Chad, please put in a fart effect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so great. I'm going to cover uh, issue number two first. This is literally the same creative team from the last time. John Byrne is on, uh, is writing and uh, doing pencils and doing the letters. Uh, we've got Tom Palmer on inks, Gregory Wright on colors, and Jason Liebig on uh, edits. And of course, Gregory and Jason were just here on the show. Uh, so in issue number two, which is called The Ghost and the Darkness, which will be the title of this episode, uh, we see Cyclops walking through the Savage Land, thinking of how this is his third visit here. And, uh, you know, that's an X-Men 10. Then, of course, the Neil Adams uh, classic Savage Land story, which he's so well known for. And and side note, I think that's why John Byrne started the series here, because he wanted this series primarily to be a tribute to uh, to Neil Adams. And this is, you know, Neil Adams' epic story. If you go back to the 60s book, that's one of his most uh, beloved eras on the book. A Cyclops thinks Gene is dead. He's worried. He fires a crazy optic blast into the sky. And the captions note that at this point, at least, no one has ever measured how powerful Cyclops' eye blasts are. Uh, a T-Rex attacks and uh, Cyclops refuses to harm the creature. He's like, it's not his fault. I scared him and now he's attacking me, which is a rare moment of sensibility in a world where superheroes love to punch dinosaurs. So Scott Summers high five for that moment. Uh, Beast and Angel swoop in to save him, and they realize that Gene might actually be alive still. Uh, let me hear your thoughts on this opening scene. I First of all, the fact that Scott's like, I can't hurt this monster because it's just defending its land. A, this is an ongoing theme that will carry over to issue two, right, when they get to the temple. But also, I'm like, Scott, also, it's a dinosaur, and they're extinct, so maybe you don't want to kill it. <laughs> a... <laughs> You know, maybe you want to preserve it. Maybe you want to throw this up on Instagram. I don't know. But I thought that was a very cute moment. And a, a, a very, 
it's a through line that carries over to the next issue. So John Byrne was thinking of Cyclops in this context of like, hey, we're coming on their land. They're just defending their land. I can't hurt them. You know what first I mean? Do no harm and kind of energy. Yeah. yeah, we'll talk about it. Uh, Kellen, what are your thoughts? So I'll start with the art uh, because, you know, this is John Byrne. I think his heyday was like the late 70s and early 80s. But and I, there was a little bit, in my opinion, uh, over, you know, the 90s, um, his art like kind of suffered. It, it was a little bit less detailed, not quite polished. But Tom Palmer on the inks, my God, so Tom Palmer great. is is a is a fucking like world class talent. I mean, the stuff he did with Joe Kubert back in the day is great. So seeing you know i my inner child with the dinosaurs you know and all that like just came out i was like i love artists doing dinosaurs i love walter simonson and um, she loves dinosaurs and then like Zenozo tales from like the 80s i think mark schultz did that so that's all cool um again uh i just the internal narration is just so like it's so histrionic it's very silver agey uh, you know, some ways great, some ways uh, not so much. But uh, I know we're going to get into this a little bit later. But the, the villains are just so so goofy uh, <laughs> that I, I want to spend a uh, not just a little bit of time, but a lot of time on them when we get to that point. Uh, so then we jump we jump back to New York City. Bobby, this is hilarious to me. Bobby has crashed on the couch of Zelda Kurtzberg. Now, Zelda is the barista girlfriend who briefly dated. She gave Bobby his kiss on his 18th birthday. At this point, with this appearance, we will have officially covered every appearance of Zelda Kurtzberg in comics. This is the last Wait, is this her last appearance ever? Mm -hmm, yep. Uh, she shows up in X-Men 14, 19, 22, 24, 27, 31, 32, 41, and 47, as well as Marvel Holiday Special 1994 and Untold Tales of Spider-Man 21. And we've literally covered every one of those stories on this show. Uh, so she uh, she does appear in first class, by the way, but again, that's not canon, which we just talked about. So Bobby wakes up to hear Zelda on the phone with her mom. He is sleeping in the weirdest position on her couch, like his lower back must be toast. And uh, he's Zelda... butt, he's ass up, by the way. He's just FYI. <laughs> you know, he's practicing. Sorry, I'm gonna be <laughs> I'm gonna be making these jokes all throughout this podcast. Get ready, y'all. <laughs> Uh, Zelda's on the phone and she goes, uh, she's talking to her mom. She goes, he just turned up at my door last night. Now he's crashed on my couch. Yes, I know it's been weeks since the last time he even called me. He didn't even show up to help Vera move in like he promised. But what was I supposed to do? You know, I've always been a sucker for the birds with the broken wings, which is amazing. <laughs> uh, uh, is that Bobby, another euphemism for gay people? Birds with broken wings? Because I have not heard that one yet. I'm going to start using it now. It's giving me very Albie from season two of uh, of White Lotus energy, where he says he he's false. Yes. Did you just make a White Lotus? Oh yes. Not the first on my show either. Uh, so Bobby woke up and he didn't even remember having knocked on Zelda's door at two in the morning. She pours him some coffee. She says, "What's the skinny, Bobby? You vanish out of my life without so much as a word. And when things go bad, you show up at my door. Am I supposed? And I'm supposed to feel flattered or something?" And Bobby immediately starts whining about another girl he's been dating. He name drops Lorna Dane, and Zelda's like, "Fuck you! This is about another girl. You dump me and then fucking show up on my couch." And the argument wakes up Vera, who's in her bathrobe. And I love Vera. I did a two and a half hour episode on Vera. <laughs> but then Bobby suddenly disconnected from reality because he got a telepathic message that he intercepted. And 
he goes rushing out and Zelda's like, ah, uh, baby, she's, she, he's gay and very self-absorbed and like dating a superhero is hard enough, Zelda, but dating this particular guy who's saying he's in love with another, you can do so much better. So wherever you are in the Marvel universe, I hope you are happy and getting lots of hot guys because you deserve better than Bobby Drake. And maybe we will never see you again. But this you is think a she good has like a Google you. alert for Krakoa. Like, and she's just <laughs> following all the updates right now. <laughs> she follows them on Instagram. <laughs> I, I, I have to say the one thing. Oh, go. go ahead. No, I was just going to say the one thing I'm going to say about this scene that struck me when it was written, because I think at this point we had so many innuendos about Bobby's, you know, LGBTQIA plus identity. John Byrne did not care, <laughs> did not mm -mm. lean into that. For all intents and purposes, Bobby is that fuckboy who just shows up, crashes on your sofa, ruins your life, is talking about another girl. But I don't think there's any subtext in these panels that Bobby may be struggling with a um, some sort of identity. Sometimes you can read into Which that. Is yeah. Which is so funny because if you read um, X-Men number one, 1963, Stanley, uh, Jack Kirby, when Gene shows up, Bobby famously goes, ew, a girl. Uh, and it's <laughs> like, okay, even these two titans, you know, RIP, like they knew Bobby was gay. And John Byrne could not admit it. He just but can't even, do it. Even before, I mean, knowing that this, public, this published in the early odds, Gene and Bobby have that infamous scene at like Borders or Barnes and Noble. And he's here like, oh, Gene, you know, other boys don't like shopping, but I, you know why I like shopping, right? And she's here like, Bobby, I would never read your mind. I have no idea what you're talking about. The innuendos were there. And we did Legion Quest here on Power of X-Men. This, you know, the issue specifically where he and Rogue go to see his parents. The subtext is there. You can argue the subtext is there. Some writers, yeah. were, some writers were saying no. Some writers were in on the joke. Some writers were not. I famously said on my show once when J.M. DeMatteis wrote the original Iceman limited series, clearly he's hinting that Bobby's gay through the whole thing. And then I interviewed J.M. DeMatteis and he's like, oh, yeah, I didn't know that at all. <laughs> sometimes but, we just but sometimes. Don't know. A good writer is writing up to people. I'm not saying that John Byrne's not a good writer. That's not what I'm saying. But no, I'm sure, just saying. Sure. Yeah. But I, I, I think here it's a very earnest rendition of Bobby being a fuckboy, a, a heterosexual fuckboy. So and that's it. Zelda is concerned, and she calls Candy Southern for help. And I love Miss Candy Southern. Mm. She is home from tennis practice, wearing all white shorts. Skirt. She and this is a big division of what separates her from Zelda and Vera, who are like two city gals that have to split the rent. Candy like lives in her like mansion with the like pretty view out the window, and like her whole room is decorated in immaculate white, white piano, white rug, gorgeous view outside. Uh, and there's photos of Warren on the wall, and there's one photo of Angel shirtless carrying Candy in a bikini in the air, and he signed it to Candy with love, Warren. This is a running thing that goes between these two. They like to give each other signed photos of themselves. But this specific image is really profound because it's the first incontinuity mention that we know that Candy knows that Warren is a mutant. So we we just reviewed that 70s series where the Dazzler kidnaps her and Angel is unmasked. And we're going to reference that a little later in this title. But this image of him with wings carrying her is the first canon that we know that she knows about him being a mutant and that she doesn't care. 
they are so hot together. They're fucking all the time. I love these two. <laughs> Any thoughts on Candy Southern? She she agrees to go look into this. You know, we're going to see her in a couple more issues, basically. But any thoughts on her quickly? Candy Southern is a gay icon. She <laughs> is. R.I.P. She needs to come back. They need to find a way to bring her back. Um, yeah. I mean, Krakoa is bringing back humans, right? With the Phoenix Foundation. Why not? Candy should be like... Number yeah, one, they can view. download. They can download the information from the failings or something like that. Whatever, wave your editorial sure. hand. Okay, the only thing I'm going to say is that, like, fine. Candy has like a fucking beautiful mansion, but fucking Zelda here has an apartment that's probably on Bedford because we know it's inspired by the Friends apartment. They, that <laughs> yes. shit ain't rent controlled. They're paying a pre. Even when this issue in the early odds was published, they are paying for that for that apartment. So I think they're all fabulous. Uh, I've said this on the show before, but Candy is Daphne and Vera is Velma and uh, Zelda is Fred. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. I love them all. I love you Fantastic. So Fantastic. Why so are we such are... an icon chat? <laughs> we are back in the Savage Land and the three boy X-Men, not Iceman, because he's not there, realize that they are among an interesting kind of priest case of people it's like a tribe in the savage land the savage land is really fucking huge it's also got pangea attached that has races of winged people that live there it is not weird for superheroes to run into a new tribe we've never seen uh but they they learned that uh they this this particular tribe has a ritual of sending their old and infirm down this kind of river sticks energy place on a raft and they're supposed to pass into quote an earthly paradise and then they're never seen again and this river is guarded by these very strange, skinny-looking priests who look like they're wrapped in, in robes, but they turn out to be wings. And also it turns out that Magneto is pretending to be a ghost because this is the era where he could still astrally project. And he's manipulating these priests. We'll learn more about that in the next issue, but it's kind of important to set that up. So they get the idea that Jean Grey has gone down this river. They, they, uh, the, the priests believe she was dead and sent her down this river. And now Cyclops and Beast and Angel want to follow and they're like, no, it's forbidden. And they decide to go scout ahead and they end up fighting the priests and they're like, fuck you guys for your religious traditions. It turns out they're bad guys. So that's the it's it's OK in this case. Also, his girlfriend is missing and she's like 18. And I, I get that they want to go, but they're like shooting people in their native home. It's something there's something uncomfortable about that. Uh, then the, the priests like unfurl their wings. Uh, Cyclops gets shot in the chest with an arrow and you're like, holy fuck. Uh, the priests look a little bit like the character Dinosaur from the Great Lakes Avengers, mm -hmm. you know, but, but there's no similarity or relation uh, that we've had uh, confirmed in the books. Uh, Cyclops and Beast end up careening down a river on a boat and they find this ancient, beautiful city down there. And Cyclops is like, holy shit, the arrow I was shot with, I'm, I'm suddenly healed. And then a cage drops over them. Uh, meanwhile, Angel has like flown into hurricane force winds and they like slam him into a wall and a strange winged woman finds him. And also we get one single panel of, oh no, Jean Grey fainted. Uh, and that's the end of issue two. <laughs> uh, so we've got Ghost Magneto. We've got uh, the Cafe of Go-Go Girls. We've got winged priests. There's a lot happening in this issue. Uh, let's keep going in issue three. Paul, will you take the first half for us? Yeah. So we open up issue three with Lorna and Alex. And there's a telepathic call from Xavier. And Lorna is actually really startled by this. And Lorna's like, oh, I'm not used to this. And Xavier's so fucking salty. 
is like, well, Lorna, if you're going to be an X-Man, you need to get used to these telepathic in intrusions. Issue, in issue one, when Xavier goes in her mind, Lorna literally says afterward, like, oh my God, I need a shower now. That's <laughs> what happened. <laughs> I just like, I'm thinking Lorna is all of us. Like if someone just randomly popped in my head right now, I'm sorry, Xavier, stop being a jerk. Like you're intruding on this young woman's head here. Like, come on, don't be audibly daft with that. Oh, I forgot to say before, issue three is called On Wings of Angels. Uh, just noting that. But Which is also an X-Men Evolution episode mm -hmm. title. Mm -hmm. That's right. So then we cut back to Angel, who wakes up, and we sort of get a recap of everything that happened in the issue before. And he is... Hang on a second. He's kind of confused about everything that's happened, and the people who are there with him say, you must be mistaken, Atlander. No one has ever gone so high into the mountains and been able to survive. And Angel's like, no, I did, but I don't know how. And, you know, he's kind of questioning everything that's going on right now. And these two, their names, it says later, are Sokka and Linak. And uh, we'll learn more about them in just a minute. But uh, they're former members of this tribe that were sent down the river. That's, that's kind of all you need. What, so I'm reading this on the Comixology app. So when you're reading it on the guided view, you go to that panel with Angel like this. I don't know if you can see that. And I thought something yeah. happened to his leg <laughs> when we got oh, there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And so I was a little bit confused by that. I was curious about like the editorial decision and like the art decision to do something like that. But I want to say for these first pages, I thought like the first like six pages, I thought the art was so beautiful, so well rendered. Angel, I mean, total snack in this. Mm -hmm. Angel so food then, cake, as I call him. Stop it. Do you call him angel food cake? I love that. I do now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just make that up right now. So... Cyclops and Beast are on the boat, and then a gate sort of rises from the water. Is that what happens? I'm not they, too sure. Well, they had a cage drop on them in the, la in oh. the last issue, so oh, they're okay. escaping the cage now. Okay, I thought the cage. The cage here. The, the cage here. The illustration looks like one of those like frying baskets you see at like fast food places, by the way, <laughs> and they're getting out of like boiling oil. That's the vibe I got. What is the name of the city they found? Is it mentioned here in the issues? Uh, I don't believe they named the city. The tribe is named the Nugarai. N-H-U apostrophe G-H-A-R-I. And we'll talk about that name in a few minutes. But Great. I don't believe we learned the name of the city, no. But I want to give John Byrne some mad props here for the art flex. I think I DM'd that to you earlier today, Chad, like mm -hmm. in the previous issue when they first arrive and even here where they sort of escaped the cave or excuse me, the cage. I mean, the art is just absolutely stunning right there. I mean, that yeah. is gorgeous. Oh, yeah. It's so intricate. So then we flash uh, to... Okay. I was just going to say Tom Palmer's ink's just fantastic. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, he's a wonderful. He's so wonderful. So then we flash forward to our God Queen, who is Lane, and like Jesus, is resurrected <laughs> once again. <laughs> And she says that's the second time a presence, you know, a reference to a plan I've heard, you know, since I got here. So, you know, Jean's alive and she uses her telekinesis to get the keys to the door that she's being held in. And she unlocks it and she notices that there is a ghostly apparition of Magneto. And she's sort of thrown off by this apparition of Magneto because she can't really place 
him psychically. She's confused by it. So this is our first hint that Magneto may not just be a ghost or the remnants of something else. It's going to be a larger story point here. Ghost Magneto is so stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Ghost Magneto has like a bee in his bonnet. He's just like really upset. I love how Ghost Magneto is like, these kids are the, you know, my arch nemesis, like, and they're here and all this stuff. I was like, Ghost Magneto, come on. You're like 70 years old. Like, take a chill pill. He's every Scooby-Doo villain, to go back to Chad's comparison. He's like, I would have gotten away with it not for you meddling kids, you know? And he's a ghost. You just, like, take off the helmet or take off the mask, and he's actually a real person. This is Magneto's experiment on people and create people who can serve me uh, era. Not a great, it's not a great time for him here. (laughs) Not a good look, yeah. We have like Beast and Cyclops who are kind of questioning where they're at. And this is like a place where they can heal. You know, we have Amphibious who also makes uh, a, an appearance in these panels. But they mentioned, and Chad, one of the first episodes I listened on your podcast, you clarified the pronunciation of, say, how, how do you pronounce Kesar. Kesar. <laughs> and they're like, well, not even Kesar knows this place exists, which I think discredits Kesar so much. <laughs> but they, you know, to, to finish my recap here, you know, they kind of question how did they not know this this section of the Savage Land existed? Well, and they realize, they realize the city's being run on slave labor, which I think is mm-hmm. part of their shock here. Like, holy shit, there's, there's <laughs> slaves. Like, these people get sent down the river, and they're not dead. They get healed, and then they are made to work as uh, slaves. It's, uh, yeah. it's kind of intense. Paradise. Well, false paradise in the first place. <laughs> Uh, and then we get a very yummy image of uh, Kesar uh, bent over in his loincloth. There's a little upskirt action happening from the camera angle. Uh, Zabu is there. They're, uh, they're fantastic. And Kesar says, uh, and I quote, Kesar too can smell the familiar scent of the X-Men on that strange craft. What is the familiar scent of the X-Men, do we think? Smells like Team Spirit. I don't know at this point. Kids, right? Uh, listeners, what do you think? Tag me in your posts. What do the uh, X Men smell yeah, like? Uh, slide into our DMs, please. What does Kesar smell like? That's what I want to know. You've been in Savage Land for a while. Is it like a like a, a pleasant musk or something worse? He sleeps with a tiger. It, this man does not smell good, but he looks good, so it's okay. I know. Why is he being He's so short. judgmental? God, Kesar. <laughs> Uh, Kellen, take us through the last last half of the book. Sure. So uh, a very buff yet very condescending K-Star greets Alex and Lorna as they try to figure out where the rest of the X-Men are in Savage Land. Lorna tries out a new code name, Magnetrix? Magnetrix. Magnetrix. That is not an easy thing to say. It is not an easy name to say, and I'm really glad it didn't stick for a variety of reasons. Because that is a terrible code name. Well, terrible, she, had terrible, the name, she had the name Polaris much later, but that's also decades before this. So this is Burn because she's she didn't have a code name here. And and Havoc right. goes, I hate your code name. She's like, whatever, you didn't choose yours either, bitch. <laughs> it's, it's a great <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it is, it is. Ugh, yeah. yeah. Awful, but yeah. But while that's going on, uh, we see Jean again in her best Ebenezer Scrooge slash peasant girl girl mashup cosplay, seeing the ghost of Jacob Marley, I mean Magneto, being very shouty with Amphibious. 
she just texts something a little fishy. He's not really, is he really a ghost? I can't sense him. What's going on? It's all very like ominous. Uh, and then over in the magical bunker uh, where Angel is, uh, one of the, is it the Nugari? Is that how you pronounce it? Nugari? The, 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 I, I believe it's Nugari. Uh, the way Nugari. But these are the these are the slaves. The Nugari are like the winged priest guys. These are the right. slaves yeah, the sl- they've been keeping. Yeah, so not Nagiri. That's that's actually fish. Uh, but or like <laughs> or like uh, sushi. The Nugari. So one of the Nugari spills the tea to Angel about how his people became skinny, hairless, white twinks that live forever. <laughs> Turns out there's a magic involved because of course there is. And on the plus side, his people grew wings, but the price they paid was the loss of any upper body strength or lower body strength for that matter. So in order to keep up pretenses, the Nugari convinced the Savage Land villagers uh, to send their old and sick folks over to this magical place, telling them it was basically heaven. Of course, total lie. While the old and sick became young and healthy, they lost their free will and became slaves for uh, the Nugari. So but let's- Here's the story. Oh, go ahead, sorry. So I, want, I want to pause there for just a moment. So the story, where the origin story we're getting here is one tribe found a resource that they decided to keep secret for centuries and it caused them to mutate. And then they've now enslaved other tribes to maintain their power, which is very briefly the story that we're being told here. And and yeah. are we in America is my question. <laughs> I mean, you know, the subtext is not bad. Uh, you know, clearly there is some, you know, some interesting theme that Burn is playing with here, which is what makes the X-Men so great. As we know, you know, it's, it's always subtext for, you know, what people are going through, uh, people you know, from different multicultural backgrounds, people who have been marginalized. Uh, so I do appreciate them trying to be um, a little bit, you know, more thoughtful, a little less just surface level uh, on on the story that's being told here. I don't know why Byrne chose the name Nugari. Again, N-H-U apostrophe G-H-A-R-I. It's uncomfortably close to the N-word for me, first of all. Second, Mm -hmm. the X-Men have a race of demons that they fight called the Ungarai, N apostrophe G-A-R-A-I, and I fucking hate this name for this tribe because it just just so closely associated with the the other race of demons. Uh, But uh, Kayla, keep us going. Yeah, sure. I'll just say one thing. I've been kind of uh, down on this book. I will say the uh, design for the Nugari is pretty cool. Uh, it is, uh, you know, white Twinkie, sure. But also <laughs> it's very like Michael Moorcock, like Erica Melbonet, uh, however you say that, uh, wherever he's from. Like it's got that like kind of vibe about it. So it's very unsettling and unearthly in a, in, in a cool and creepy way. So uh, while Angel's hearing the story, he comes face to face with the angelic woman who saved him in the last issue. Turns out she's kind of a, a mutant or a mutate herself. She's different from the rest of the uh, Nugari. Like she's got, one, she's got hair uh, on top of her head. Two, she's got like kind of a feathered bra thing going on, but she's got the, and she's got like a little bit of like a very deep V like bikini bottom going on. So not sure about that design. So this so woman's speak, name, but... this woman's name is Avia. She's going to be a reoccurring character through the hidden years. We're going to see a lot more of her, including the time she got kidnapped by Craven the Hunter. We'll talk about that when we get there. Oh. But I, I, there, I, I, I have no reason to like this character. 
<laughs> Angel, this is Angel's holy shit, I'm attracted to a puppet moment, basically. Like, yeah. He's like 12 it's pounds. Very Jim Henson. Uh, very, very like Dark Crystal looking. And I love the Dark Crystal, but still, we shouldn't be attracted to puppets. But also, but also, Avia is serving drag, honey. Like, she, <laughs> she's fabulous in her way. Uh, Paul, do you have thoughts on, uh, on, on Avia? No, the only thing I would note is that, you know, she looks, she's very bird-like, obviously, which obviously goes to, my mind goes to the She-Are and someone like Deathbird and something like that. So just an angelic version of Deathbird is where I, where I kind of end my opinion on her, unfortunately. <laughs> I fucking so, love Deathbird. I, think, I, I love Deathbird, too. Deathbird's, Deathbird's fantastic. I think I would like the visual a lot more if the face wasn't so unsettling. Uh, if you, like, zoom in on that panel, yeah. it's just, it's very uncanny valley. There's, like, no dimension. It's very flat. And I think it, it, the that's character model like, feels me off. Out. Yeah, right? <laughs> Avia or as great of a creepy. She's creepy. artist. He is. I, and, I, would, I would assume it's deliberate, but I, it's very off. And Deathbird can also eat breakfast. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And how dare Warren be cheating on like the goddess Candy Southern? How dare so, he? Can I tell you? I again, I haven't read this since like the early aughts. I actually, for when I was reading it on the guided view, I was like, oh, did Candy just get some wings? You know what I mean? Did she call Xavier for something? Because it does feel odd. I did read ahead. It does feel odd that they planted those seeds for Candy, and it doesn't pay off until a couple more issues down the road. I thought what Candy did in the last yeah. issue would have some ramifications in this issue. So yeah, I thought this was longer. on Candy. Yeah, but Candy, but, Candy gets to fight the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants soon. We'll get there. Listen, Candy's a fucking goddess. Please invite us. Invite us back. She's for great. Anything uh, candy and related. just to know, again, we're going to spend a lot of time with Avia as we go forward. We'll talk a lot more about her. But Warren hasn't cheated yet. He's only looked. <laughs> uh, Caitlin, keep going. Uh, while all this is going on, Scott and Hank are continuing their little bromance adventure in that nameless city underground. And they discover what looks like a spaceship powered by Fabergé egg hot air balloons. Uh, I really could not figure out what this image was. So I'm hoping that y'all can help me. Let me know what it is. It is an airship. They don't know what it contains, but uh, we are going to see more of this in the next couple of issues. So I'll save that for now, actually. Got it. But there are, I think, okay. four separate double-page spreads of this fucking balloon craft flying across the sky in X-Men The Hidden Years. So be prepared. <laughs> do, do you know what really, and maybe, Chad, you would have better context for this than I do. The, the landscape, this airship the city it feels very mobius to me do we think john byrne would have been inspired by mobius uh, yeah. this late you know later well, in, mean, in history and hot air balloons automatically take me to the wizard of oz too there's yeah. a we'll, we'll explore and this also has a very indiana jones feel there's there's a, a few it does for me i like the design quite honestly it is interesting it just was hard to determine exactly what it was and um, unless you read the subsequent issues so while this is going on, uh, Hank says, what in Steven Spielberg is that? Which seems very anachronistic. Canonically, <laughs> Steven Spielberg's first movie came out in 1971, Duel, which was a TV movie. Jaws didn't come out until 1974. So I know we've talked about the timey-wiminess of like Marvel's, you know, you know, timeline. Like the Fantastic Four went up when Obama was president. That still fucks with my head a little bit. But um, Were you one of the angry DMs I got? Uh, I DM you every day, and it's usually angry. Sometimes it's <laughs> nice. Sometimes it's, you know, 
Not bad. Yeah. When I get DMs for me, Beast also says, and this is not oh. the first time in the comics, but it's the first time on my show. Uh, so continuity, he says, as my aunt, Gr- or as my sainted aunt Gertrude used to say, "Oh my stars and garters," uh, which I love. I love that. That's his catchphrase. It makes me smile every time. You, you know one thing? It's great. The, it's fantastic. In the previous issue, when Angel came to Scott, and you know Scott is sort of like upset that Gene had died. He, he's like, I have news. I want to tell it to you. And there's like kind of this delayed in delivering the news. And Angel's like, no, Hank, you can't say it because you use such big, you know, crazy words. And I'm like, Beast actually speaks very normal in these issues, for lack of a better term. Um, it's not with any like very hyperbolic vocabulary. Which he's I in the jungle was- and he didn't have breakfast and he, yeah, he's <laughs> not in the mood. I mean, breakfast was the most important meal of the day. Hank McCoy's just a phony. Uh, yeah, we, yeah. Uh, let's, uh, what happens on the last page? Sure. So the issue ends with Ghost Magneto phasing into Jean Grey while he goes into a Silver Age soliloquy about how powerful he is. Dun, dun, dun. Next issue, escape into oblivion. Okay, so, but this is also just a weird fo- foreshadowing when Magneto or Zorn would kill her in Planet X-Men. Oh, yes, that's true. Or Planet Um, X, I'm sorry. There's several things that make this really exciting. It's a Magneto story that we've never seen before. It's the Savage Land. There are winged slavers. There's a crazy Muppet bird lady that's going to be part of their friends. We get Lorna trying out the name Magnetrix. We get Zelda and Vera and uh, especially Candy back for a couple of pages. There's a lot of joy. And this is what I'm talking about. The series is not perfect. But it brings a lot of wonderful in because uh, it fits and it's stuff that works for the characters. Uh, so Candy Southern was dead in the comics and we get to go see her in this book here. You know, like those types of things are super fun. Uh, do you guys have final thoughts on what it was like to read X-Men The Hidden Years 2 and 3? I will say, um, again, art was beautiful. Um, and, you know, and putting it in context of when it came out, um, the X-Men were a hot mess in like the late 90s. You know, you had the post-onslaught, post-operation Zero Tolerance era, which they Marvel tried to do some cooler stuff with Joe Kelly and Steve Siegel. Um, and then, you know, we had what I call like one of the first dark ages of the X-Men. Uh, we have had a few uh, before Grant Morrison came on and did their run, um, you know, uh, and so the X-Men were just a hot mess, like just in general. So I can see why people like this. This was, um, it was simple. It was a self-contained story. There weren't a million crossovers, you know, uh, and it was, um, I kind of feel bad for Byrne, which is a weird thing to say, because yes, you know, he's not my favorite now, uh, but he definitely uh, didn't fit in with the, um, the aesthetic that Joe Quesada and Bill Jemis were trying to do in Marvel in the early 2000s. And so, uh, the book was, you know, booted, and he, you know, in the early nascent days of the internet, he let it be known that, you know, that was not his decision to do that. So I feel kind of bad for the guy, and I feel bad. I feel bad more for the fans of this book uh, as well, it's coming out. I'm sure there were a bunch of them. Much like today, there were back then. Speaking as someone who's collecting, there were eight or nine monthly books coming out. There were also like two or three or four limited series series happening at a time. Uh, plus Gambit and Wolverine were showing up everywhere. You know, like it, it it was rough to keep up. And this was a simple book. I I this joy, this book brought me joy back when it was originally coming out. because uh, it was less complicated. And I got to go do the continuity studies, which is always my favorite, right? Uh Dayspring, do you have final thoughts on the hidden years? 
yes, I hated these issues. <laughs> <laughs> Acknowledging that it shipped about 40,000 copies, right, during this time. So that's not, I think some books have been canceled for far less since. But here's the thing, in fairness, this was 1999. We had the 12 post-Operation Zero Tolerance before Morrison and their epic run with Frank Whiteley would come to fruition. I just, here, here's my grievance with it. I just don't think there's anything innovative with this so far. And I feel that we would get Morrison, we would get Ultimate X-Men, and those were very innovative ways of retelling X-Men stories and appeal to a larger mm -hmm. audience. I think this is burned trying to fill in those gaps during, you know, the repub era. But, you know, I, I think about it. One of the things that I've really put, I put my, my hat on when I'm thinking about would I recommend this book? It's a lot of people who engage with power of X-Men and the community want to know, do I have to read this? And I look at this, I'm like, read first class instead, read season one instead, read whatever. And it's unfortunate because I don't think it's bad, but I think Chad to what you said, you had to grow up in that era. You had to see that cover, that issue one cover. You had to pick it up and really experience it as it was happening. I don't know if that magic exists in today's world, if you can transplant that magic. So, so uh, if reading I can, it as a middle-aged man, I did not like it. <laughs> if, I can, if I can add something to, to that, um, you know, I've loved the X-Men for decades, and I think the X-Men work best when it's about pr propulsion forward. It is always about evolution, not, you know, no pun intended with a cartoon, but it's about like, what's next? And Claremont had this great saying, it's like X-Men, Uncanny X-Men number 100 should not look like Uncanny X-Men number 200, which should not look like Uncanny X-Men number 300. And my favorite runs, I think the best ones have been the ones where like, you know, it's Morrison, it's Hickman, uh, you know, uh, it's other writers who haven't gotten as much you know, notoriety or fame as them. And whenever uh, Marvel does nostalgia for the X-Men, it never really works for me. It just mm -hmm. never does. I can appreciate the craft. I can appreciate the love, uh, but it's not for me. Like, I think, you know, like even in this Krakoan era that we're in right now in the X-Men, uh, I don't know if your listeners are caught up in the modern stuff, Chad, but um, it is, uh, it is, you know, I hope that in like three to four years, it looks a little bit different. Like we keep Krakoa, but it's not, what we got at the start of, you know, right after Hoxbox ended or right after Inferno happened, you know, it looks a little bit different. So it's the start. It will there. always be changing. Uh, so we have a lot more to say about the hidden years as we move forward. We will pick up the next two issues in our next episode, which I'll announce uh, at the end. Hey, everybody, we are so thrilled to be welcoming the incredible creator and writer, uh, Ken Nomura. You may know Ken as the creator of Penny Parker. You may know Ken as the artist uh, behind the legendary series, I Kill Giants. Uh, Ken, welcome to Gray Malkin Lane. Hey, pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Ken, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Let us know your gender pronouns. And I'd love to hear if you'll kind of start out what are some of your stories uh, turning kind of from a fan of comic books and art into a professional? I'd love to hear a little of your origin. Sure. Uh, okay, so pronounce he, him, uh, but use whichever you, you want to. And uh, so I, I, I grew up, I was born and grew up in Spain. My, my mom's ja uh, Spanish, my dad's Japanese. Uh, which is why, you know, I've been coming and going from, you know, Europe to Japan. I currently live in, in Tokyo. Um, and I've been doing comics 
basically since I was a kid, since I can remember, uh, I've be, I was being like drawing and drawing panels and uh, making small zines or books. Uh, and and I often tell people like I still do comics because I just kept on doing them and nobody told me to stop. And I was like, as long as you know it's fine, I'm just gonna give it a try. And here I am, uh, some years later. Uh, but always, anytime ready to to quit doing comics if you know if 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 something happens. So so which I don't know if it's a healthy way of approaching it. But um, but I just um, it's really what I like doing. Uh, but you know, it's always like a it's a daily challenge uh, doing these things. And um, yeah, and then we're saying so comics I liked or comics I maybe grew yeah up comics that inspired you or that you enjoyed. I'd love to hear yeah. kind of where you started and how you got into the business as well. Hmm. Um, let me remember. Well, one thing it's not really comics, but I've grew, grown up watching tons of like Hayao Miyazaki movies. Um, mm -hmm. so the two we had, we had VHS tapes to give you an idea of my, my age. Uh, same, and so, same. right. When Buffy the Vampire aired, we had to record those on VHS tapes because there were I did no the same DVDs. Thing. Yes. Oh my God. Same. Me too. Exactly. And so, you know, the, the, the two I had were uh, Naushika of the Valley of the Wind and um, mm -hmm. Laputa, the Castle in the Sky. And those we, with my sister, we just like watched them over and over whenever we were sick. So it, it's funny because I, it's just been recently that I've realized that, you know, he's been probably one of the biggest reasons I, I do comics. And I, I, it was, it's been such a staple that I have never really like realized that that was a thing. Uh, but, you know, he's, he, I mean, even now, like I really like study his work, and it's incredible how from the very beginning, even the very first like sketches that Hayao Miyazaki does, everything's in there, and the you know the movies in there are just like you know, it's working uh, all over those sketches, but the, everything's there, which is just insane. And and probably the other one, again, that you know it's been a staple, and then only recently I realized like, my God, this is great. Uh, it's actually it's a super. Uh, obvious one, but like Dragon Ball, and so Akira Toriyama, and I loved it. It was so much fun when I watched it as a kid. But I, uh, we had an exhibition in in Tokyo not too long ago with a Shonen Jump um, original art, and I went to see it. And we they had many of his pages, and man, they were so good. They were so good. They make you feel like drawing. They're so good, but they're so. So they look simple, but they're very intricate and complex. So, but there is something that even as a kid, it made you feel, want you, uh, it made you, you know, want to give it a try. And even as an adult, you look at them and there's something that's just so, I don't know, joyful. There, there's so much joy in those drawings. So uh, those would be maybe the two that I would say maybe connect me with, you know, what I used to read as a kid and, you know, what I do now um, as an adult. Uh, but, you know, other than that, like I've read tons of uh, actually probably superheroes are the ones that I've read the least, <laughs> as I told you right before. Um, I've read some, but not that many. And um, and I sometimes struggle whenever you used to have you maybe some have the caption of like um, connected to issue, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, I'll, like for certain people, that's a, that's actually the draw. It's it's what's fun, the, the lore and everything and for me. Because I haven't read that many, I'm like, then I don't know. I don't know what this connects with. Uh, 
Um, but yeah, then and you know, I've I've lived for a while in Paris, so I I read tons of uh, French European comics to over there. So yeah, I like to think like I read a little bit of everything, uh, but sometimes I, you know probably that means you know I don't go super deep into you know each one of the you know, types of comics. So let's start with uh, oh, oh, Kellen, you had a question first. Go ahead. I, I did. Uh, one, I'm um, Ken. I'm going to try not to fanboy too much because I think your work is absolutely just stunning. I'm uh, going to <laughs> Well, we're both going to. We're all three of us will fanboy. Um, we're, I'm trying not to, uh, you know, be too for talking to you. Uh, so, um, one, I do love your style in just immensely, and I, I, I can see the influences as you were talking about it. I wanted to ask you. Uh, I am a superhero fan, first and foremost, as you can see, you know, my background, mm -hmm. um, the X-Men are, you know, uh, big to me. I love, and I love Spider-Man too. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to you about Penny Parker, uh, specifically, yes. you know, I recently reread the Marvel Unlimited, um, uh, series that came out last year. And can you talk a little bit about like working on her, creating her, like the, the look, the design, just like the kind of her background and like kind of what was your, your thought process as you, as you did that? Sure. So. Yeah, I got commissioned that they were like, uh, so actually probably the, the webtoon was supposed to be timed with the movie release, which, which back in the day was supposed to be last year. Then, you know, it's been postponed to this year. And so they wanted to do, I'm assuming, like a number of like um, short, like mini series based on character that would appear on the movie. Um, so I had watched the movie and I read the and I would tell them like, can you send me everything you have uh, about her? And luckily for me, they only had three issues, and that was great because I was like, you know, I read them, um, uh, you know, the you know the origin story, which is um, what collection is that? But you know, we we had three of them, and so basically, you know, I just read them, and I was like, and I you know also having watched the movie, I was like, what can we do that you know might be interesting for? Um, and, and, you know, one of my obsessions is like, whenever even I, when I do my own stuff, it's like, how can I make it compelling even for people that wouldn't be, wouldn't be interested in them initially? How can I make them understandable and, and as engaging? Um, and, uh, I saw like potential, uh, uh, in Penny Parker to make like a comic that would appeal like younger readers. And, um, and currently in the, in the States, that would mean that you have to go for either, let's say, middle grade or y, uh, YA. Um, but my, my approach, probably having grown up with Miyazaki movies, is more like, an, let's say, an all ages comic. It's like something that, you know, mm -hmm. would, you know everyone would, would under, um, appreciate and have fun with. So, so I was like, you know, what kind of comic? And so I was picturing, like, so who would maybe have... Um, and Marvel Unlimited account. And I was like, it might be people, people that maybe already have kids. So could could I maybe make maybe make something that you know they could enjoy reading with their kids, for instance. And and that's and and then, you know, Penny Parker, people know her mostly from, from the movie, I guess. Uh, but on the movie, she, she's just really like a you would say like a cliche. It's like your anime girl. It's fun mm -hmm. to watch for sure. And it makes sense that she's like that in the movie, but it's a, you know, it's just like a very, you know, it's just a surface that you get to see. So I read the three comic books, which are, you know, very like anime 
inspired mostly Evangelion. And, and so basically I was like, if I were, if I were the reader and I wanted to get to know her, you know, which, which things would I like to know? And there was basically, uh, the reality is like I had one and I still have like one project that I would like to make with her if Marvel wants me to, but, uh, but I was like, in order to get there with the information we have for now on these like three issues in the movie, we, we have a gap here. We have something that we're missing. So I was like, I'm just going to make the a story that would talk about that part that we're missing. And hopefully that'll make me, that allow me to make the bigger story or that will just like, allow anyone to work on the character, but without having any missing information. And that missing information was like, uh, you know, her stories, origin stories, like her dad used to pilot uh, the, the, the suit. He, passes away and then they call her and they're like, you're the only one person who could pilot this suit. Uh, but she hasn't, she grew up in, um, uh, I don't know, boarding school orphanage or, you know, she hasn't grown up with her dad around. Um, and so in the comic, nobody, and my question was like, how does she feel about like her dad or how did her dad feel about her? And, and how does she feel about like having to pilot something on behalf of somebody she hasn't she's, she hasn't met much maybe and so that was to me like the core of that idea and um and because she grows up with uh, her her aunt and uncle uncle um <clears throat> it's about like you know you could say like surrogate parenting and so how do they feel about you know her um and everything so you know it ties to you know just like family relations but you know it's fun because you know it's not like your usual um family setup you could say and that's exactly you know what's what's fun about it um so so that was like at, at last at least you know as far as the, the story like you know the the approach and then the design the, it's funny like after having made it then I, I i did what you shouldn't do which is like go online and read comments and there were people that were like i don't get this design you know what's going on with this and to me, it was like, you know, we have the movie design, we have the comic design, they're very distinct and different. Uh, and I was like, can I make something, can I just like draw from both sources and make something that would be fun for me? And that's what I what I did, like a very cartoony, simple design. Uh, maybe in hindsight, maybe, maybe I should have stuck to one or the other. That's kind of, um, and, you know, so people could be like, oh, yeah, this connects to the movie or, yeah, this connects to the uh, comic book. And so maybe what I've made something that's somehow in between, which was the intent, but I don't know how people maybe feel about, you know, that being um, in between the two of them. Um, and sorry, I, don't, I, I might be missing something here. Um, no, you're doing great. Yeah, no, that's yeah. such a thorough this is awesome. response. I love this. Wait, Ken, can I ask you, you know, you said something, I want to pull on a thread that you just mentioned, which is your design approach. And one of the things that I think that resonates so much with comics for us is that artists and writers actually speak up to their audience. Mm -hmm. And it's evident when I read I Kill Giants, when I've seen some of your other work, that you are, the way you render, the way you tell your story is you're talking up to your audience. That is an emblematic theme for the X-Men. So my question for you would be, is there an X-Man that you would love to have tackled? Is there a design you would have wanted to have done with one of the mutants, X-Men, that 
that you think you could put a, a unique stamp on? That's a good question. Um, I cannot remember right now, which is <laughs> a, the worst answer ever. But I do. Why I is do it Jean Grey? Why is it Jean Grey? <laughs> exactly. I'll, 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 I'll note that down for sure. Thank uh, you. Um, but the thing is, like, before doing that one, I did like a short story. I don't know if it was, I guess it was before Penny Parker, and uh, which was for like an Asian uh, the, um, month anthology. And, um, and I was looking up characters, and I was like, which ones uh, we had to use one character for sure. And they were like, you know, but you know, you can use whichever other character, um, to, to appear with him. And I was looking at up characters, and the ones I was drawn to, and I like I don't remember the exact names, but I was looking at all options for like Asian um, characters at Marvel, including you know uh, mutants and everything. And I, it was actually the ones that had like more complex like origin stories and more uh, gut wrenching ones that I was drawn to. So. <laughs> Which I don't know what that says about me, but it was more like <laughs> when it's uh, when it's a straight line, it's not so much fun as, for example, Penny Parker, where it's like there's something. I would say if I were her, I would be, and that's basically how I approach it. It's like I would probably, you know, think this and that and that. I would probably be missing this thing, and you know, uh, so it's it's mostly whenever <clears throat> there's something going on with them or they're imperfect, and and you're like, I think there's something to say about them and whenever and and that's actually what sometimes um, so for example like barbara in i kill giants is she's you know like an anti-hero and i'm drawn to those characters much more than i am to like a, a, a hero hero where probably because like how i just like grew up being an outsider in many ways like i have a much more difficult time just identifying with them and so whenever I see somebody struggling with something, I'm like, I think I get you. I think I, I think we can be friends, basically. And so if they ever gave me one that would be more, you know, like a more perfect character, like I'm gonna, would, I'm gonna toss out a Glob Herman for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, what you're so funny. You said Glob Herman. I'm thinking armor. I'm thinking so many characters that have unique mm. powers that yeah. it can that arrow could be great. Your, 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 the way you approach narratives is so kinetic and so unique. There's a reason why I Kill Giants, when you look at, you know, best indie comics out there, you know, novels, it always comes up. And a large part of that is because of your prodigious storytelling. So we want you to do all of the characters we just mentioned and more. <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be... But yeah. not Beast. But not Beast. Beast okay. is worth sex men. Perfect. Not in doubt. <laughs> So I pay attention to how I feel when I read things often. And when I feel a particular way, I'll go back and read a book again. And your recent Penny Parker work gives me, I feel like I'm reading a Peanuts cartoon. Mm. Uh, it, it's that kind of energy. There's a cutesiness, but like an emotional depth about it that just is so special. Uh, I told my children, I have a 14-year-old and an 11-year-old that I was interviewing you today. They said, where, where would I know him from? And I'm like, it's Penny Parker. And they're like, oh, because they love her so much in the movie and we've read the comics together. 
Uh, I've known you, however, for longer than that because I bought I Kill Giants back in 2009. I was a big Joe Kelly fan at the time. I picked up this book and I had never read or seen anything like it. Uh, Barbara Thorson is a socially awkward, badly behaving, angry child who might be insane. She punches her therapist. <laughs> she doesn't like anyone, but she's also got this kind of vulnerable heart of gold. Your art style with her bunny ears and her hammer, uh, with the occasional big spooky giant on the horizon, it's one of my favorite books ever. And I, this is where we get to like fanboy out a little bit because it's it's really such a huge honor meeting you. And before I have you respond, uh, both of my co-hosts read I Kill Giants for the first time this week. Uh, guys, tell me about your reaction reading this book. Um, I'll start. Uh, the art is stunning. It is uh, it is manga. It is bandasine in all the best ways possible. And it gave me feels to Chad's point. Like I felt something, you know, and this emotional connection. I had this emotional connection with Barbara, you know being you know I'm, I'm a gay guy and like you know i was in the closet when i was a kid and you know i had a lot of like aggression and anger and you know depression issues to deal with and you know like finding uh you know i related to barbara a lot it also reminded me a lot uh in the best way possible one of my favorite movies growing up was heavenly creatures uh, <gasps> uh by peter jackson uh, i have been um, thinking about that movie so much because the actress who played pauline what was her name was on uh last of us yes yes she was yeah or paula she whatever was, her name is uh, um and um god that's a great connection i didn't even think about that but you're right but like it's about you know uh if you've never seen the movie kind of it's about these teenage girls in new zealand who um you know they 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 become friends and they develop this fictitious world because the world around them is so mundane and terrible uh, so I got that vibe very much, and it's very much just a really just a you know just a gorgeous gorgeous book. And uh, I'm mad at myself for not reading it earlier. Uh, I'm really mad at myself uh, for not doing that. So, uh, yeah. Disney, what were your thoughts? I'm going to echo what you said. I'm mad that I hadn't read it earlier because this comic published in 2008, 2009, and. It has influenced so many narratives. I just read a couple weeks ago, it's Lonely at the Center of the Universe or Lonely at the Center of the World, the Zoe Thorgood uh, memoir. And so much of that is inspired by I Kill Giants. I, I see it now. But I also understand like the groundwork that you guys had laid for this space. And I just want to thank you for that. It truly was paralyzing. I've gotten those recommendations before to read this, to read, to read I Kill Giants. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. It's on my list here. And I have to tell you, I'm sorry that I didn't get sooner because it is so good. It, it, this is probably my top pick so far of this year that I've read. And a lot of that has to do with your kinetic storytelling, which is just, it was prodigious then. It's prodigious now. So Ken, let me ask for your response to all of this, uh, but I would actually love to tag on the question of what it's, what's it been like to be the artist of this book who people are constantly approaching and saying, oh my God, this book, I loved it. It changed my life. How's it been to be that guy over the years? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you so much for reading it. Thank you so much for your kind words. And uh, it, it means a lot to me. Uh, and uh, 
where should I begin? Um, I'm happy it's connected with you. Uh, it has to do a lot for sure with um, Joe's story and you know the the narrative he created. Um, I I worked on the so I met Joe at a convention when I still I hadn't even finished uh, college. So we befriended, and he was like, "Hey, I have this uh, this project. Would you like to take a look at it?" And I read it. I love the script. And I was like, I'd love to make it, but I still have to finish my studies. Could you wait for one year, one year and a half? And he was kind enough to wait. Um, and then I graduated and I was like, I have to make a um, life choice, which is like, do I join a company uh, as a graphic designer or you know something like a, a proper job? Or do I give a comics a shot, which is what I've been trying to do all my life? So I just like used my my savings, some savings I had, and I let's say I bought myself like a year or a year and a half of time to work on the on the project. And I was like, if it works, that's great. If it doesn't, I've given given a try, and I, now I know the result. And then you know I can make choices afterwards. So yeah, and I actually moved. I don't know if it's really connected, but I moved to Paris. That's when I moved to Paris because I was like, if I'm I I, I was living in Madrid back then. I was like, I, I was, I don't know why I moved, but I was like, it sounds fun. <laughs> it sounds fun. I have a place where I could stay. I'm just going to give it a try and be somewhere where I don't know the city much, where I can't speak. I do speak, I did speak French, but not too much. But I was like, where every day is going to be a struggle, not a struggle, a challenge. And, um, and I was like, you know, it, it, it'll be fun. So I, I was just living there. Uh, one of the things that influenced Eichel uh, Jens in many ways was, so I didn't have a, a TV uh, at home back then. And so what I had instead was like a, a, pa a movie pass, a cinema pass that they still exist nowadays, which is like you pay something like $25 and then you can go watch unlimited movies at the cinemas. Including God, I, miss those, I miss those days. It, it's still, in, in Paris, it still exists. You know, Paris being a city where you have subways and it's easy to walk around and they have tons of like mini theaters and it's insane. Like you can be like a Thursday at four, and you're like, "I'm gonna go watch a movie." And they're like, "Oh yeah, we have a Battleship Potemkin," and he's like, "Well, you know, I'll, I'll guess I'll go watch that one." So you can actually do. To me, it's like it was like going back to school and like learning cinema. And I watched oh so many movies that I hadn't ever watched. Many black and white movies that helped me think about how to render I Kill Giants uh, for sure. Um, and yeah, I worked on that and I was like, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, like I, I, I was like, I connect with the character, I connect with the story. Hopefully, you know, um, that is the case for, for the book and other people. And, you know, we were lucky enough that, you know, it did, um, it did quite well. And, you know, I'm still doing comics thanks to IQ Giants, like for sure. Hadn't been for that, uh, would be, you know, probably doing illustrations or, or others. And, um, um, mm, 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 sorry, what else did you ask? So you, it was a huge hit, clearly. Like you, you took this big risk on yourself and it paid off. What are you doing professionally now? How do you spend most of your time and what are you doing with your art? That's a good question. Like this month I've been taking too many illustration jobs somehow. And I'm asking myself that question, like what am I doing with my job, with my, my professional time? <laughs> and so next month, so we've just finished uh, no, no, I finished like 
some months ago, but like we're publishing, Joe and I were publishing a new comic that's called Immortal Sargent. It's being mm. pre-published, uh, well, published as a comic book through Image. It's starting coming out in January until, and that's going to go go on until September. Uh, and um, so I have that going on, which uh, was very interesting because we, let's say, reunited like 15, no, not 15, like 10 something years after having done Akira Giants. And, you know, I had been working in Japan uh, in the middle, in the meantime, and the States for other projects. And so there, it was very different the, the way we worked on the, um, on the project this time in the sense that he had a script, uh, but this time, uh, like for Eichel Giants, it was like a one-to-one, let's say, translation of what he had on the script um, I did on the page more or less and however for for the new one um i've been working a bit more as a you know artist for sure but like um, let's say you could say script doctor and so I, we've been working around with the script a lot i was like suggesting edits like what if we move this scene here what if we cut this scene what if we add a dialogue a new scene here and um uh, because it's a very very heavy subject especially for joe we, because it it is about like his relation to his father, who was like a pretty complicated person. So, <clears throat> so I think like he didn't have that much distance with the subject matter this time. So I was acting as a, I was trying to find, let's say, like the best shape for that project. And sometimes that meant maybe taking out some scenes, adding new ones, and then of course like drawing and everything. Um, so. Take a look at it if you have the occasion. I think it's a it's a cool project. It's a very different from Idol Giants. It's a bit more realistic and more adult adult oriented. Uh, Is there but, a release date? Yeah, yeah. So there's already three issues out, I think, and um, probably the fourth will be in April, probably next week. And so the, it'll be nine, I think. Total of nine. Wonderful! I can't wait. Same. It's it's very it's very heavy. It's very yeah. It's very well. Image stuff. is just killing it with those kinds of with those kinds of narratives. But can can I ask you a quick question? You know, you were graduating. You had money set aside for a year, and you were sort of at a, at a crossroads. What was that moment? Did you get any like great advice from any contemporaries at the time that said, mm. you know? Let me let, let let me take this leap and let me let me follow my dreams because it spoilers did pay off for you. Yeah, I have. Um, I wish I could tell you like, oh yeah, I have this like mentor figure and he was the one guy that person guiding me. That wasn't the case, but I did have some other friends that kind of took the same. You know, we were you know just most of us had just like graduated and we were like, okay, so which path do we choose? And I had some other friends who were like, um. I'm just going to try to see what happens if I do what I would like to do rather than like wait for, you know, I don't know, save some money and, and do that down the road. And so I did, I do remember like getting together with some friends uh, that I used to do cartoons with and they were like, yeah, no, wait, why don't you just give it a try? And, um, and the other thing is like I had, you know, back in the day, like in Spain, there were so many comic uh, contests and, and I, <laughs> I became became very good at getting prices in them, uh, 
and uh, they were super short, sorry, like four short four pages or eight. But they did pale super. I mean, probably my best page rate so far has been those contests. Like it was insane. So I had some money saved, and I was like, I'm just gonna um, I'm gonna try it. And the funny thing is, like, I'm right now. I'm in the same position where I'm like. I could keep on doing commission work, which I enjoy, or should I use up, not use up, but you know, spend my savings doing one project that I think I would like to do, and that's what I'm what I'm going to do. And it's, but you know, I'm I'm finding that you know, 15 years later, it's a much more difficult choice to make. It's, it becomes harder to be like, yeah, I'm going to spend my savings and and let's do something crazy. But I'm exactly at the same point where I'm like, um, I don't know if I'm I'll be good at doing. I would like to make like a graphic novel where I uh, thick one where I just write and draw myself. And I'm like, I don't know if I, let's say if I have it in me, I'll get, I'm going to give it a try. If that's the case, great. If not, you know, I'll know it. Um, but, you know, like for, for, from all the projects, starting from Ico Giants, like I, ha I come from a zine background. And so I'm used to like doing everything myself, like from the, first idea to the graphic design and preparing the files. The good thing about working with Im at Image is that they they allow you to do that. I actually, Marvel too now, like Penny Parker, I did everything from the script to the letter lettering. And even the logo design, everything, I, I did everything. And um, and I'm doing like a short story now for them. And that one too, like they're, I'm doing everything. I'm, I, I want to think just because like they've seen work that I've done before and they're like, okay, he more or less knows how to make that. And um, and the way <clears throat> the way I approach comic making is that um, how say it's a storytelling device that starts from the cover, the paper, the book design, graphic design, the layout. And so because I do everything, the fun part is that I can I can play with all the elements at once, which when you're working as a, let's say, artist or pencil or inker, or, you know, one, doing one of the parts, it's difficult to know, you know, what other people are, are going to do with what you do. Um, but in my case, for example, even for Penny Parker, I was like, no, I'm going to maybe on the storyboards, I had like one speech written somewhere, and I, but then you know while drawing, I was like, no, no, I'm actually going to take that out, and I'm going to put this speech written uh, down here, or stuff that I've done oftentimes is that whenever you have a proper, I mean, a, a paper comic, um, well, you know, you have the double spread, and you know, the space itself is limited. For a webtoon, the good thing is that if you want to insert one panel or two, nobody's going to say anything because it's just like adding extra space and that's it. So I did like draw everything and then at the very end, reread the whole comic uh, story and I was like, oh, actually, we might need like this small scene here and there. And I just added it there or changed the, um, the positioning of like certain drawings or uh, adding more space. But it's all just about like, you know, how can I make something that reads from the beginning to, to the end without people having to stop, basically? And how can I make it so that the, you could say like the emotions, because that's basically more mostly that. It's not that much about like, do the scenes make sense? Uh, to me, it's more about like, do the feelings make sense? Like, can I, do I really flow from one scene to the other, understanding exactly 
um, you know, what the character is going through. Because like sometimes you could say like, you know, the, the specific specific like scenes or what happens, even in life, I don't think sometimes things make sometimes sense in the sense that, you know, maybe are not logical, but like if you know what you're feeling, then you know that, you know, you have what you need basically. I interview, uh, I interview a lot of artists and I love hearing about your process and how your craft changes over time and how you put yourself into it. It's a, it's a tremendous honor to meet you, Ken. I'm a huge fan of your art and your style. Uh, and you sounds like you're thriving and busy and, uh, and doing really, really fantastic work. I can't wait for your new book coming out as well. Uh, we're going to start to wrap up here. Uh, it's been a tremendous honor interviewing Ken, and it's been so fun hanging out with uh, with Caitlin and Dayspring. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in and for listening. As we are wrapping up here, let me have each of you tell everyone where they can find you online. And uh, is there anything you'd like to plug, recognizing we're going to put this episode out on around May 8th? Uh, so we'll have uh, Dayspring go, and then Caitlin, and then we'll wrap up with Ken. Yeah, so if this is May 8th, you can hit up hit us up at Power of Exmo on Instagram, on all podcast platforms and YouTube. We will have Emma Dumont, Scott Liddell, Stephen Gordon on the pod at that time, and we'll be on our way to MCM London. Fabulous. Uh, it's so good to see you, my friend. I know you have a meeting, so I'll let you pop out, but thanks for hanging out tonight. Oh, thank you. Wait, can I take a screen grab so I can promo this? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Hang on. All right. All right, guys. Thank you so much, Ken. Such a big fan. Homo Superior. Love your podcast. Same Chat. here. You're iconic. Looking forward to meeting you in person. Yeah. Bye, guys. Bye. Uh, Kayla, do you want to go next? Sure, sure. Uh, Chad, thanks so much for having me on. And what a delight to be able to talk to you. Uh, again, I'm with Homo Superior Podcast, one of uh, five gay men based in D.C., focusing on the X-Men and the MCU. Uh, look for uh, Smart Analysis and Dumb Jokes Weekly. We focus on current comics, the current X-Men comics, and of course, MCU uh, movies and TV shows. And if this is coming out on May 8th, uh, we'll be, have just have celebrated our sixth anniversary, believe it or not. And if you're in the DC area, come to AwesomeCon. We'll be hosting a panel there about relationships within the X-Men. Uh, hope to meet you in person if you are in the DC area. Thanks so much again, Chad and Ken. Thank you, Caitlin. And then Ken, how about you? Where can people find you online? Yeah, so I'm probably on Twitter, Instagram with under like Ken Underbar Nimura, I, I think. And, uh, that's, and that's N I I M U R A for everybody. Good call. Yeah, exactly. Uh, difficult to spell. And uh, and then yeah, like if it's coming out in May, we'll you know probably the fifth volume of uh, issue of uh, Immortal Sergeant. Uh, that I've, I'm working on with uh, Joe Kelly will be already out. And um, yeah, and I think I have like short story coming out through Marvel like in June, but I don't remember the the release date. So please take a look at my social network and take yeah, a look at there. Yeah, we'll keep watching. Uh, what a great opportunity to meet you, my friend. Thank you so much for hanging out. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure being here. Yeah, have a wonderful night. And then lastly, you can find Gray Malkin Lane, Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. We're going to pick up X-Men The Hidden Years again in a couple of episodes. But first, in our next episode, and if you haven't seen this online, this is thrilling. We are going to be reviewing the limited series Wolverine The Origin.
Wolverine's coming onto Grand Malkin Lane. And our guest is going to be uh, Mr. Paul Jenkins, who wrote Wolverine The Origin. So we get to deep dive into that series and introduce uh, the X-Men's most famous character. Uh, also, watch what we're doing on uh, the Patreon channel. The best way to help support the show is to sign up for the Patreon. It's only $3 a month. Uh, I'm putting a lot of work in. We have a lot of insightful, wonderful uh, episodes. If you're hearing any of those that we release out on the main show, you know how quality they are and how fun they are. Uh, and we're always putting out new content and I'm getting to research all over the place. It's a blast. So watch for episodes about Thorn, the sister of Feral with uh, Dylan Carter, and uh, Curse, uh, the new mutant kid from X-Men Green, uh, who will also be featured in Realm of X. Uh, that'll be with uh, the writer of Realm of X, uh, Thorn Grandic. So uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, thank you, uh, Kellen and Dayspring, and uh, especially Ken. We'll see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Grand Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grand Malkin Lane.